3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, and you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast with no. uh, Judith and Edwin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can um, introduce each other. Yeah, we can, we, we can, because uh, yes. we're down two members, so we've yeah. got to spice it up a little bit. You know? We do, we do, yeah. <laughs> um, you're coming in to the 13th of February. Uh, That's right, and it Wednesday. just happens to be World Radio Day. Yay! Yeah. And I think we have the, the values of World Radio Day, is that correct, Judith? Or the theme? The themes, yeah. thank Wait you. For this year, it's uh, promoting dialogue, tolerance, and peace, and this is from the UN Secretary General. Excellent, excellent. And I'm just organising our show because I've managed to <laughs> stuff something up. But also, seeing it's World Radio Day, we also thought we'd um, mention the fact that it's also here at 3CR, Subscriber Drive Week. So yes. if you are interested in uh, renewing your subscription or perhaps getting a new one, it's $35 for concession or pension subscriptions, uh, 75 waged and 150 solidarity band or organisational subscription. And it's very easy to get a subscription here at 3CR. Feel free to come into our office, call us up, do it online. It's, there's so many ways to do it, and it's a wonderfully giving thing to do. And uh, also, the, you know, our theme is Feed Radical Radio mm. by subscribing now. <laughs> and so I think since it's World Radio Day, it's worth remembering that uh, 3CR Community Radio was granted its license on the 10th of October, 1975. But I will say that, that uh, you know, community radio goes back quite even further mm, than that, even definitely. earlier than that, particularly internationally. I think the U.S., certainly Central, Australia, Central America, sorry, is doing lots and lots of... Um, has lots of events for World Radio Day. Mm-hmm. But right here, we all started in 1975. We started broadcasting in July 1976. And uh, our studios, our first studios were at High Street in Armadale. <laughs> but now, the station's owned and operated by the Community Radio Federation and owns the building where yep. we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. so here at 21 Smith Street. So again, if you, you know, do come in, and it's great to meet people who are interested in the radio station, interested mm-hmm. in 3CR, wanting to subscribe. It's, it's very personal. So do drop by 21 Smith Street. And uh, our AM transmitter site is at Werribee. Nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And each, more, more, data. (laughs) Do we love data? Each week, 3CR produces over 120 radio shows in 20 community languages. So, so, yeah, um, and uh, powered by nearly 400 volunteers. Yeah, and it is pretty amazing. The shows are pretty diverse and pretty powerful. uh, Journalism? Yeah, journalism, active journalism, I'd say. Um, So absolutely well worth, as we did mention, we have got our subscriber drive on, and the theme is Feeding Radical Radio. Uh, So, yeah, get involved if if you're interested. Um, otherwise, today we're going to have a show not focusing necessarily on radio, but a range of different topics. As we, as we usually do. As we usually we do. do. So later in the show, we're, we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Nicholas Purcell, mm-hmm. who is uh, at the Australian Catholic University. And, um, 
He's uh, one of a number of experts uh, on Iran at that university. Mm, okay. And so it is the 40th anniversary of the, yeah. uh, the Islamic Revolution uh, in Iran. And mm-hmm. uh, there's been not only celebrations in Iran, of course, but also there's been a fair bit of um, commentary around it. Okay. So he's going to, uh, we decided we would call it, it was more like a conversation, exploring <laughs> ideas. So exploring that, ideas. That's after 8 o'clock. Excellent. And working back from that at 7.45, we have an interview with Joe from Switchboard, which is an organization that uh, kind of promotes activism around LGBTQIA communities, um, kind of advocating for greater recognition as well as providing support services and just generally all-round cool, funky community services. Yeah, and then we'll also be speaking to Dr. Sue Wareham, who is the national president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Mm -hmm. and we often speak to her and other people involved uh, about, you know, the issues around that. But today she'll talk to us about um, the the bill that's just gone through the lower house. Yeah. uh, On the, Mm. uh, yes, the urgent medical treatment bill, so she can talk about that. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. But that will all be coming up after alternative news, so we're just going to switch to that for the moment. Yeah. And you're listening to 3CR. That was Nitty Gritty by Shirley Alice. Um, which we and, and we love that song. We love that song. <laughs> <laughs> now, in alternative news, um, I think... Ah, well, Judith, do you want to start or shall I? You go. I'll go yeah. ahead. Right, so... In alternative news, um, you may have heard that the last kid was finally evacuated from Nauru of the last, for the last week of January. And, however, whilst he was evacuated, he was evacuated to be hospitalised, which I think is a kind of bitter indictment of uh, the alleged alleged abuse um, and malpractice going on, on at our offshore detention centres. However, in our mainstream news, and especially here at 3CR, we're always focusing on, you know, the human rights abuses that are being committed on offshore detention. Yeah, and that's important. And but that's there's many aspects. Essential. But there are many mm. aspects um, to offshore detentions and their impracticality. So I thought this week we'd look at the exorbitant costs that have been used. Um, honestly, Judith, it really takes effort to be this expensive. <laughs> I know, and to yeah. spend so much money in the interest of harming people, really. Yeah, in the interests of supposed border security, which means chucking people out to sit in camps. It's horrible, horrible stuff. Um, anyway, uh, so implemented in about 2012, uh, the, border, the offshore detention centres have raised huge amounts of costs. And I think the biggest one I always like to bring up is the 2014 uh, Cambodian deal. So if you don't know about this, this is an agreement signed between Australia and Cambodia uh, in 2014, providing for the relocation of refugees from Nauru to Cambodia as a means of regional settlement. That was what it was promoted as. Um, However, as I said, divided between $40 million in aid and about $50 million for actual resettlement, whilst the scheme was supposed to relocate 1,000 people, and it ended up relocating five yeah, I know. Four of no, whom, this is a, yeah, a ridiculous. Four of whom story decided to return to their homeland just a year later, despite being faced with persecution. And then, since then, the deal has slumped. So that's about fifty-five million dollars 
<laughs> committed. I mean, it was it was already a poor mm. country it was where the people who yeah. live there are struggling mm-hmm. to bring people in from outside and you yeah. know with um, support and money is about about and not that it's much, but mm. uh, it's going to set up a, an uncomfortable and possibly resentment. Yeah, there and, no, uh, no. Um, so yeah. that was a whole lot of money blown out. Um, and at the time, the the politicians went, oh, forty million dollars in aid to that country, but really it was so tied to the refugee deal that it really did feel like a bit of a bribe. And the Cambodian government at the time expressed its displeasure and annoyance. So well done, Australia. That was bad, bad economic planning and also regional uh, ramifications. Anyway. And bad for human rights. And absolutely devastating for human rights. Um, Or we could kind of look into last year where the government agreed to give about $70 million in compensation to an alleged um, physical and psychological abuse case uh, faced by the court. Um, alleging that the Commonwealth had breached its duty of care by holding them in conditions that did not meet Australian standards, um, something that, well, could have just been avoided yep. if these offshore detention centres hadn't mm-hmm. been planned. And, in fact, the Senate estimates from last year's hearings actually show that more than $230,000 have been paid out in public servants and detainees for personal injuries and wrongful detention claims in Australia. And the offshore detention centres, including $69,000, uh, in payouts to immigration department staff and subconscious in 2016-2017. So the list just goes on and on and on. And the real reason why I bring up all these numbers and kind of <laughs> just kind of boggle your mind with them is just the other day an extra $109 million was paid to a private security firm, uh, the Paladin Group, to provide security for refugees on oh, Manus oh, Island yes. and Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And this is, yet again, Australia putting throwing out... <laughs> huge astronomical amounts of money, um, this time into investing in a company that has allegations of suspicious payments, lying down during, t- lying during the tender process, and deceptive contact. It's conduct within the security firm. Um, that's citing it from the Financial Review, and we'll be looking into it more. But to compare these costs, it costs about $400,000 to hold a person in an offshore detention centre, an asylum in an off- asylum a seeker in an offshore detention centre. And overall, it's cost about $5 billion since 2012. That, that's, that's huge and uh, great, huge. great that you've looked into it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, um, I mean, I know people are aware of probably parts of that story. Parts of it, but it just goes but on. But to pull it all together mm. and, and the amount it's costing. Yeah, and I, I just got two last statistics for you. But to hold someone in detention in Australia would cost $239,000. And to live in the community detention or in a more community environment would be $100,000. Yeah. So from $400,000 to $100,000, the government likes to suggest that offshore detention centre is the cheapest, the best, the most effective, the most secure way. It's not the most secure. It's, it's not. not and the most, most of the people And most of the people there have been uh, declared refugees, uh, yeah. genuine refugees. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I don't know, there's a little bit of uh, alternative news for the week. Just looking at the economical absurdities to come out of offshore detention centres. And, you know, liberals like to tout themselves as the financial keepers of Australia, and yet they're, they're letting this ridiculous, ridiculous I, I, I think ahead. I think that's another myth, actually, to be oh, looked completely. into. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen some interesting... I don't have them in front of me, but the, some interesting analysis on that as well. Definitely. Yeah, so that that's, that's really concerning. I guess also, though, today we have some good news. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, in in that the pass for refugees and that the the passing of the bill to bring people here for for medical transfers that mm-hmm. went through uh, Karen Phelps' bill that went through Parliament yesterday. So we'll hear more from later on that from Dr. Sue Wareham, and also the return of Hakim Al Arabi, who was in a Thai prison. Uh, for I think over 70 days and uh, that was met with great celebration and along with that is um, the fact that I think that the sporting organization is going to look more carefully Mm -hmm. internationally Mm -hmm. at the practices of uh, colleagues uh, uh, in relation to um, the sports people who stand up for human rights in their own countries. So I think that the sporting community is seeing that there can be a role for them. And, of course, sport's another way of interacting across nations. Another kind of can be another kind of diplomacy. So anyway, you know, it'll be interesting to see. They're looking at it. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. So I think by last night, we were feeling, a lot of us were feeling that it was good, some good things that yeah, happened. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and I appreciate you passing, <laughs> finishing <laughs> off on a high note. We definitely need one. Um, we're actually going to switch to a song now, and then we'll be coming back with an interview. So we'll see you then. And uh, this is Nina Simone with Feeling Good. Off to a gentle start this morning with Nina Simone. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. And you're listening to 3CR Radical Radio. And you are. And um, last week we played an interview uh, with Dr. Sharon McLennan about Cuban doctors and uh, their work in the Pacific. This, and this morning I'm going back to, that, to the <laughs> conference that that interview came from. Very nice. Yeah, which was, um, it was um, a conference about new geographies of global inequalities and social justice. I remember the big name. The big name, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was really interesting because people presented their work from in many parts of the globe mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, what was going on. And it was actually encouraging to hear, as, as it was last week when we heard about the Cuban doctors, yep. a story that we're going to follow up. And this is another story that um, I want to follow up this year as well. And it's Dr. Vanessa Lamb, and she's from the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Now, her PhD research was on the politics, again, big words, <laughs> the politics <laughs> of econo- ecological knowledge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, how do we get to know things and how come we don't? know certain things or get to hear about it in terms of the ecology climate Mm. change all of those things so you know it's it's important and in her case she was looking at the development of the Salween River which flows through parts of China Thailand and Myanmar and last year we were very interested in what was happening in Myanmar around the Rohingya refugees Um, but this uh, this takes place in a different part of Myanmar where the Karen people um, live so she's currently doing research on water governance in the Salween River, and I asked her about her project. The project at the beginning was really just about assessing some baseline water quality and other kind of information, as well as outlining what is a broad range of policies and other kind of legislations around water in this area. One project in Corinth State that I think is very interesting is with a group of residents uh, who have been working on community management around a lake that's quite near to the river, but it, it's within the basin in Corinth State, not too far from the city of Pa'an. But at the beginning, our frame of reference was to look at water governance of the river. But the community members said, actually, what's more important is the lake. 
and our fishing livelihoods are more linked to the lake and its management, and we're worried that if the river changes and its flood regime changes because of large-scale dam or road construction, that our lake will be gone. So we actually changed the project to then look at community management around the lake, and they've actually presented their work now as a community management strategy to continue that as a, either a community management strategy or maybe even a co-management strategy for that lake area in Corinne State. And who did they present it to? So in Myanmar, there are multiple layers of government involved in natural resource management. This includes federal government or union government, as it's known, also subnational or regional government, um, and then there is district and township government. So at the same time in Corinne State, there's mixed authority governance where sometimes you have armed ethnic groups that also claim authority to different resources. So within this context, there was a whole range of different governments that need to kind of hear about this work, and uh, that is very much ongoing. The people who are do, have done the work on the, the lake management, when they do these presentations, what are they asking for from the various levels of government? From what I've seen them do research on, analyze, and then present to other groups, they really want to make it clear that there is existing management or, or governance regimes of water resources in this area that need to be taken seriously. Are those regimes their regimes? Yeah. yeah, they're regimes that you know local residents have developed over decades or even generations. You know, if you take a kind of standard development or planning approach, you might think, well, best practice is that we come from the center and we kind of tell people what are the best practices and then you can follow these. But instead, what the community was trying to do was say that, actually, we've already developed our best practices, and we'd like for you to take these seriously. So a lot of work was done in building trust among the community and then being able to present a kind of shared analysis of what that governance actually looks like. The Myanmar government has a poor reputation in the Karen area as well as with the Shan people. There's also been conflict with the government. How does this affect what the people want to do for the lake? There's a very practical answer, but then there's a more political answer. So the very practical answer is that as a community, if you want to be taken seriously within emerging levels of government, you want to make sure that what you're presenting in terms of research, let's say, is credible to a whole range of audiences. So there's a practical element to that in the sense that you don't necessarily want to discount certain individuals or government officials being an audience to hear your work. But in a more political way, I can't really speak on behalf of people who live there and it's very you know it's not homogenous right people have different hopes and visions for the future but I think in general there is a feeling that without dealing with this continual insecurity and maybe not necessarily a daily conflict but a kind of history and for some people very much daily conflict without really dealing with those issues it's really hard to see longer-term visions for trust with government and longer-term visions for community resource management. And so I do think a political message from most of the groups I work with is that a key thing that needs to be developed now is peace. And then being able to really have conversations around what does management of resources look like in that context.
sounds like developing plans for the lake in a way is an act of optimism. And I think there's actually a lot of optimism. One of the groups that I mentioned, KSAN, the Korean Environment and Social Action Network, put together quite uh, detailed and quite compelling plans for what they call a Salween Peace Park which really does envision community management from multiple levels around concepts of peace and nature in a way that's not necessarily this uninhabited, pristine nature, but a very much inhabited nature that we live with every day. And I think initiatives like that are both very compelling and they have a wide base of support within the country. So more optimistic visions for the future doesn't discount what is quite intensive struggle for peace and self-determination in the country has been long going and also doesn't discount the fact that there are a lot of varied visions for what this would look like in the future. And uh, that was Dr. Vanessa Lamb from Melbourne University talking about water governance in the Karen region of of Myanmar. And uh, she presented that paper at the New Geographies of Global Inequalities and Social Justice Conference last year. Um, and it's so interesting that getting, you know, hearing indigenous perspectives or the perspectives of people who lived on that land and that country and that water for years and decades and in some cases thousands of years. Yeah. How important that is. And you know what? It's just come up with the Murray Darling Basin here in Australia. Uh-huh. The same kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Not including Aboriginal peoples in the conversation. In the conversation. Not um, hearing about what Aboriginal peoples have done, you know, yeah. over many, many years, not thousands of years. The land. To look after the land. Yeah. So it's funny. Like, this is in Myanmar. But we have similar issues right here in Australia. Definitely got ties everywhere. Um, We're going to listen to a few uh, community announcements and then we will be back with our next interview. Yeah. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonization, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Friday the 1st of March at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 94198377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au. 
Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. So, apologies to Sail for Justice. I certainly interrupted the <laughs> community announcement, but we are back. Um, <laughs> and we can play that oh, yeah. announcement again because such can... an important project. Yes. Definitely. So up for our next interview, we have Sue on the line. Yeah, Dr. Sue Wareham. Uh, she's the national president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, which I'm tempted to call MAPW. I'll have checked with Sue if that <laughs> is an acronym that's used. And uh, interestingly, um, the, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War is the founder of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in, I think it was 2017, and we've certainly spoken to her about that before. But this morning, she's joining us to talk about her organization's support for the Urgent Medical Treatment Bill to amend the Migration Act to provide for urgent medical transfers to Australia for critical ill people remaining in offshore detention. Hello, Sue Wareham, are you there? Yes. Uh, fantastic. And I'm sorry uh, we had a little um, mix-up here, but it's oh, wonderful. Okay. And I'm just going to feel like I'm going to have to introduce you again mm-hmm. briefly anyway as the National President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Yes. And uh, today you're talking to us about the, um, your organization's support for the Urgent Medical Treatment Bill to amend the yes. Migration Act. And um, when, uh, welcome, first of all, to Wednesday Breakfast, Dr. Sue Wareham. Thank you very much, Judith. Lovely to be here. Yeah. And so when we spoke yesterday, the outcome of the vote on the bill was uncertain. How are you feeling this morning? Well, we're feeling pretty um, pleased this morning. It's um, a great relief that this bill has gone through. It's a, it's a victory for common sense, really. This bill shouldn't have been controversial at any time because mm. it's really just the, the right thing to do, to look after people who need urgent medical treatment and to make sure that they, they get transferred to where that treatment is available. So there wasn't anything, out, anything astounding or threatening about this bill. So it is a, a great relief, nevertheless, that it has passed the House and 
now I understand uh, does need to go back to Senate with the final amendments. But yes. uh, I think we're fairly comfortable about that. Mm. And yesterday you addressed a rally of supporters of the bill outside Parliament House in Canberra. What was that like? Uh, the rally was um, like all of these refugees ra- refugee rallies, um, a, a sign of hope, I mean, to see that there are many people in the community from a whole range of backgrounds who are really concerned about the way we treat refugees and asylum seekers. It was um, it was good to be there and to uphold that spirit and to keep the energy going because this is a step along the way, but it's certainly not the end of the refugee advocacy in Australia. There's a lot more to do. And and it has been I mean it has been going for a long time as you say and it's one step along the way and uh, just seeing people maintaining their activism is is terrific. Yes, um, yes it is. Persistence is the key with this with uh, like with this like like a lot of um, lot of campaign issues. And the rally yesterday was also addressed by the Green Senator Nick McKim. And um, we did acknowledge uh, and give, give great thanks for those parliamentarians, um, in, including, of course, Dr. Karen Phelps uh, and the Greens and the other crossbenchers who've, um, and the ALP yesterday who've made sure that this bill passed. Yes. Now, in, in the press release, in your press release, you say that, um, that political interference and clinical recommendations is absolutely anathema. It has never been ethically acceptable and never will be. Do you want to just say a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, I mean, those who oppose this bill really don't understand anything about medical ethics because one of the fundamentals is that clinical decisions are not decided on the basis of who a person is. And that's basically what the government was trying to to do, to deny adequate health care to people whom it found embarrassing, didn't know what to do, didn't like them. That's not the way medicine operates. Medicine operates on the basis of if somebody needs um, medical care, particularly urgent medical care and including psychiatric care, if people need that care, if it's not available where they are, particularly in remote areas like our detention centres, then they get transferred to a place where that care is available. And in this case, that means mm. um, transferred to onshore centres. So that's, uh, that's basic to healthcare. Um, there's nothing, um, nothing that's been applied here to benefit refugees, which, isn't, which is not um, part of medical ethics in other situations. Yes, yeah, so an exception has been, or these people have been sort of taken out and made exceptional around the sense of uh, not deserving of that kind mm. of medical treatment. Mm. Yes, and to make an object lesson of one group of people, particularly when the vast majority of them are genuine refugees, vulnerable um, people who have been through through terrible traumas, to make an object lesson of Mm. those people, to make a political point, is particularly offensive, and that will never be acceptable to the health profession. And one of the interesting things is that the government has managed to virtually unite the medical profession on this issue, and um, that doesn't happen easily there. Yes, (laughs) it's quite a diverse group, isn't it? 
It's a very diverse group, the medical profession and other health professionals too. But to have us all united, speaking with one voice on this, that people who need medical care need to be transferred to where that care is available. It's fairly simple. And the government didn't seem to understand that. Definitely. And hi, Doctor, this is Edwin uh, on the call. Um, but I was wondering, I, lo- I love the point you make, which is kind of like this is just an ethical situation which doctors have to abide by their code. But I was wondering, a lot of doctors have spoken up about the treatment and the sort of injuries that uh, are, on, are present on Nauru and Manus. Do you think with medical assistance being rushed out, we might have a little bit more information coming about what these people are going through and what, what's happening? Yes, I um, that's probably the case. It's certainly certainly not the purpose of the bill, of course, mm. um, but that's probably the case that there will be more information coming out. But, you know, we already have quite a lot of information. Um, Organisations and individuals who've been there have been reporting the mm-hmm. terrible, terrible health outcomes that people there are experiencing. MSF have reported um, Medicine Sans Frontières um, and individuals who've been there, um, some who've been... Indeed. I mean, we've had report after report. Mm. And last year on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, we did interview a Bridgeting nun, Irene Keogh, who has who talked about being right. on the phone to someone in Nauru who was experiencing or felt they're experiencing a heart attack and trying to get uh, medical attention for this person and uh, after hours kind of succeeding but when they finally got to the hospital there just wasn't anyone there who had, was qualified actually to see them so I mean it, it is ongoing as you say people have been speaking out we know what's going on the mm, government must definitely. know what's going on yes I think that's pretty clear, and it's pretty clear that the government doesn't care. Otherwise, there there wouldn't have been a, a need for a bill like this in the first place. It would have been automatic that if people need urgent care that's not available on Manus or Nauru, then they get transferred. So the fact that this bill has been so opposed um, mm. says a lot of a lot of unfortunate things about the government. Yes, and, indeed, and. Um, so a lot of people now are seeing that this is a win for compassion in some ways. Is that how you see it? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a win for a number of things. To have a win for compassion on refugee issues, it's, I mean, it's about time that happens. So that's, that's yeah. very... I mean, compassion coming very, very late. <laughs> you know, yes. it, it, yeah, yes, from, the, from the... Well, it's not coming from the government, actually. Yes. Um, so it is a win for compassion. It's a win for common sense. Like I said, this shouldn't have ever been so controversial in the first place. It's a win for um, for medical ethics prevailing, um, which which they should do because there's sound principles on which the medical and health professions are based. Um, so it's a it's a very pleasing day um, in Australian democracy. It's a very pleasing day in our otherwise terrible and shameful history of the way we treat desperate and traumatised people who simply want our help. But there's a lot more we need to do, an awful lot more. We yes. need to look at the issue of long-term settlement. Mm. We need to look at the fact that the camps, are, the detention camps, are really breeding grounds for ill health, for despair, for depression. Um, we, we need to get rid of them. There, there's no alternative to that. We need to give these people a decent, decent future. And Australia needs to take our place in the world 
in addressing the refugee problem. And at the moment, we're just turning a blind eye to it, pretending it's nothing to do with us. And yet we're very ready to go to go to war, wars which displace millions of people. We're very mm. ready to sell weapons which are used for repression. We're very ready to do these things, but we're not ready to look at the consequences. And those are things that create more refugees, in fact. Yes, more more refugees and those people might not be turning up on on our shores um, at the at the moment, but they're certainly turning up in Europe in Europe in huge numbers. So we need to look at this um, this problem globally and not pretend that Australia is a little island that can ignore this global problem. Yes, indeed. And so the bill has still to go through the Senate. What will your organisation be doing to to maintain the pressure to pass this bill? We'll be continuing to um, to speak out at the appropriate moments. Um, my understanding is that um, the bill is has a more certain certain future now, but we we will certainly be continuing to speak out. And we know that all the refugee advocate groups and individuals around the country will be maintaining the pressure to make sure that this bill um, doesn't fail. Yes. Well, Dr. Sue Wareham, thank you so much for uh, coming on to 3CR this morning and sharing your concerns about uh, what's been going on and the work you're doing to address it. So, you know, the, and uh, congratulations also because the, Nash, uh, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War has been very active in so many different ways. So, uh, great organization. Thank you for coming on oh, 3CR. Thank, thank you very much, Judith, and uh, thank, thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Yeah, and just um, touching on that topic, there's been memes just spiralling out of this recent bill being passed, Judith. So oh, I thought, I'd, there? I thought oh, I'd tell you one. That. There's no. one which um, says, I hate when I lose things. And it's got a picture of a wallet. It's got a picture of your credit cards. It's got a picture of your keys. And then it has a picture of a substantive vote on the floor for the fir- of the house for the first time since 1929. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And, and, and the headline, newspaper headlines mm-hmm. are quite interesting too. I mean, Ooh. the Australian, of course, um, the front page leads with blame shorten for the vote. <gasps> oh. oh, my God. Yeah, the age uh, leads with PM suffers historic defeat over refugees. Okay, all right. A little less against shorten. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Financial Review, ScoMo toughs out historical loss. And uh, on a very small section on the left-hand side of the mm. Herald Sun, we see PM slaps shorten over loss. So PM there we are. PM slaps shorten over loss. Yes. Well, that's a little bit of sensationalist and kind of tells you exactly what those newspapers um, it does, <laughs> it does. Yes. Anyway, we're going to uh, switch to a song right now, and then we're going to come back with our next interview. Um, it's called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Oh, I think I've heard this one yeah, before. Yeah, and it's called Cyber Boogie. Ooh. But only a little bit. Yeah. And as I said, that was King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard with Cyber Boogie, which is a full six-minute-long song. So <laughs> you got played a little snippet of um, the Odyssey that is... That I love the name. Music. Oh, it's... <laughs> It's a fantastic name, honestly. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, on to our next interview. Um, last week, we talked about the dangers of social isolation and loneliness. Uh, this week, we quite... 
<coughs> this week we're kind of going to look at it in effect, focusing on the organisation Switchboard and its Out and About program, which is a peer service aimed at connecting LGBTQIA elders and uh, to the wider community and really fostering that community. Such an important program. Such an important program. Aiming to reduce social isolation uh, through these community visitor programs, the scheme is facing at the moment federal funding cuts. Um, we actually have Joe, the CEO of Switchboard, on the line to talk to us this morning. So good morning, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I wonder, could you please start by just giving us a rundown of who is Switchboard and what, what, what do you guys get up to? Yeah, Switchboard, yeah, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Switchboard began in 1991 as an LGBTQIA plus organisation of mm-hmm. and for the community, which means we're a peer-led, uh, peer-led organisation. It means that everyone that works for and volunteers for the organisation identifies as LGBTQIA plus. Uh, and so when we started, as our name implies, we were called Gay and Lesbian Switchboard, which was a telephone service. <sighs> and in oh, wow. 2014, we changed our name to Switchboard Victoria. And in the same year, we adopted the Out and About program, which is an older person's visiting program. And that is a service where we visit older LGBTI people who live in aged or residential care. Mm-hmm. So we support our volunteers to go in once a week for one hour or uh, two hours once a fortnight. And we match LGBTIQA plus younger people with LGBTQIA plus older people and we foster intergenerational friendship. And we see it as like a a mutual relationship of uh, friendship that relieves social isolation. And I suppose touching on the socialisation, social isolation, why is it so important to connect these communities to kind of foster this this community? I think in our, well, I know that in our older community um, that we like to talk about as being our LGBTI elders is Mm -hmm. that through historical discrimination um, and age-related disabilities and um, a, a number of social factors that impact upon our community, that as you get older, there's a greater increase of social isolation and loneliness. I mean, there's a lot that comes in general with with the ageing population and social isolation, but Mm -hmm. I think there's unique triggers and causes and effects that happen in our older communities. Uh, The the effects of historical discrimination um, mean that people have have had a greater chance of family breakdown throughout their life, Mm -hmm. Um, and so as they get older, they're less likely to be connected to community. Also, we visited quite a number of people who have come out late in their life, Okay. Or, or are transitioning late in their life, and those decisions that they've made later in their life have caused, like, even later family breakdown. Right, right. So there is some definite triggers. And um, reading up on this story, um, one quote I found on your website described it as um, almost an identity being raised in these age facilities. So I suppose Switchboard does a lot of um, work kind of recognising these people and supporting these people. Uh, how did the Adam Bout program do that kind of by... Did, did it provide people with kind of... Sure. Yeah, validation going, hey, this is cool. We can we can meet together yeah. and share bread. So our Out and About program is funded through the National Community Visitor Scheme Program, which is a, you know, it funds a range of mainstream services that provide these visits. But mm-hmm. we're a specific LGBTI visiting yeah. program. And one of the things we do that is really quite unique to mainstream service providers is it's not just about a one-to-one visit of like a friendly visitor going in, which is a CVS model, a friendly okay. visitor going in and visiting a socially isolated person. We very much see that our visitors, through their identity and training and cultural competency, 
and um, passion for the LGBTI community. They bring, through their visits, community to the person they visit, mm-hmm. and we match people accordingly. And an example of this is that we have an older lesbian who lives in, uh, in her home, mm-hmm. and she's matched with a younger lesbian who visits her frequently. And when she goes and visits, when the younger uh, woman visits her, they sit down and they watch the L word together. Like some of your listeners <laughs> might appreciate what that is. Excellent. And, um, you know, which is you know, a lesbian TV show. And I think, you know, that's not something that a mainstream service provider would understand the importance of. Yeah. But just one example of bringing community to people. Yeah, that definitely sounds tailored to the individual. And I love the I sorry, it's Judith here, Joe. I love the idea of bringing community to the people. I think that's just fantastic. And I'm just remembering back, look, it was, it was probably about eight years ago. I read a report that was done, uh, uh, about and research done around elders. And I think it was done in Melbourne, actually, the research, which said that so many people, uh, in the LGBTI community, when they go into, uh, nursing homes that are often run by religious organizations, feel that they're often going back into the closet again That uh, because many people have lived through a time when it was illegal and then when they had to hide who they were. Is this something you've encountered? Sure. The people that we support have, um, by the definition of eligibility for the community visitor scheme, they have um, age-related disabilities. Everybody has a disability Mm -hmm. um, who we support, and I think it's a very vulnerable time of people's lives. Yes. That, that they're in. And I think people are very concerned about being discriminated and are, you know, have experienced, they have stories of people who have experienced current discrimination. So there's a perceived and concern based on historical discrimination of how people have been treated. And there's a current discrimination that people received. Because you've got to understand these people have lived through a time where they, um, where some, where they have witnessed or they have themselves lost their jobs due to their sexuality or mm-hmm. gender. Some people have lost their children. They've had, you know, um, verbal, physical abuse or witnessed verbal, physical abuse. And I think to to live through that time, obviously discrimination still exists today, but the times that people have lived through have, you know, there was a severity to them that that is a reasonable thing to fear um, figures of authority and people who have power over you, which includes aged care facilities. And it certainly isn't over. That time is not over. And I think you sort of hinted at that about religious um, organisations. And I think, you know, it's not only religious organisations, it's, it's throughout the aged care sector. And there's, you know, a reason why we're having a Royal Commission into aged care. Like, there, mm. is, there is issues in the, issues in the sector. But for our community, there's really specific issues, and they are about discrimination. Definitely. And I think, like, and some of it's overt discrimination, mm. and other, other parts of it is, you know, um, well, an example of really overt discrimination is stories we hear about, you know, transgender people who are dressed in clothes that are not the gender that they live, have lived their life in, right. you know, by aged care staff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the vulnerability that you're in uh, and that you need to rely on people to dress you and that that happens. So I think... You know, that, that's a really good example of, you know, something that might seem like a little thing but would have a, a huge impact on how the person feels about themselves within themselves. And I suppose, yeah. sorry, I suppose, Joe, jumping on that, um, obviously this, the Out and About project is currently under federal, it was announced to be under um, federal funding cuts. Uh, what do these cuts kind of look like and what consequences are they going to have on Switchboard and, yeah, the program? 
Yeah, sure. So three weeks before Christmas, mm. we found out that we had lost two-thirds of our funding going mm. forward. This was a complete shock to us at the time. Uh, we were, the funding round had been an open funding round, and we were supposed to hear, as were all the other community visit scheme providers, we were supposed to hear in September, but it got delayed until December, and three weeks up from Christmas, we found we had lost two-thirds oh. of our money. And having run the service since 2013, mm. it was very, very shocking. And what we found out since that time is that the... The positions that were LGBTI specific positions of visitor programs have gone to, because it's funded through individual funded positions, have gone to mainstream providers. And I think this is part of a worrying trend of the current government that doesn't recognise the role that specialist services play in specialist care and service provision. I think that making this decision basically to spread thinly as they have done mm-hmm. our LGBTI CVS positions out over many mainstream providers throughout Victoria, rather than keeping them within the specialist services they've been since 2013, you know, it's part of a trend that sees that, oh, well, mainstream providers can do this now. Right. And I think that that's just a complete, uh, you know, goes against what they actually have within their... They have an aged care strategy mm-hmm. that's about priority populations and includes LGBTI as a priority population and yeah. shows that there are specialist needs within our community. And I think, you know, they've actually made a decision, worryingly and distressingly, that is against their own aged care strategy, against their own best advice, mm. and sort of given it to... And, and I think, you know, what, what we know about our, our, our group is they come to our service because it's an LGBTI service. Yeah. That's why they come to it, because they, they want that connection with community. And we're told time and time again by the people we visit that it means something to them that mm. the person who visits them identifies as part of their community and has a knowledge of their community. And so I think this is the government, you know, just hasn't understood that role. And I think and just hasn't understood what the relief of social isolation actually means. And there's some really good studies around this issue mm-hmm. that says that, you know, you can be surrounded by service provision, so, yeah. but you can be completely lonely for your community. And that's what our group is, is that they are lonely for our community, and that's what we bring as a specialist service. So, anyway, to answer the question briefly, they've slashed our service by two-thirds. They have bankrupted our specialist LGBTI service in the interest of spreading them out to mainstream providers. It definitely and, sounds. Know. It definitely sounds like they've decided mainstream providers can have the funding, and that's a blanket kind of approach rather than your more tailored service. And I think you raise a really wonderful point in the idea that people need to be part of a service that they identify with or that they feel supports their identity. Whereas these mainstream providers are probably much more generalised and much more um, disconnected because of it. Um, I suppose. The the last question I kind of wanted to ask is just within Victoria. We've got obviously Daniel Andrews in in government at the moment, and he's talking about he's been talking about these switchboard cuts, but also um, trying to promote Victoria as a really diver- a, a state that div- supports diversity. So I suppose my closing question is, um, how do you think the Andrews government currently stacks up to being supportive of LGBTQIA rights, and where do you think we need what do you think we need to get well do to progress? I suppose. Yeah, sure. I mean, only to um, add one 
comment before I answer that question is Please just do. to say that if people can join the campaign to support our Out and About program, that would be fantastic. And we have been supported by the Victorian government. It's federally funded. So if people can um, follow my Twitter account at mm -hmm. um, J-O-E-B-A-L, Joe Ball, and sort of help join our campaign to put pressure on the current minister, that would be fantastic. In regards to how I think Dan Andrews stacks up, like I think he's got... Uh, many runs on the board. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the stand that he made, I think it was two days after the election to just come out and when he'd already won the election and come out and support of safe schools, to me, was a, a, a fantastic contribution to fighting back, I guess, the, the bigotry and fear-mongering yep. against LGBTI uh, kids in schools and teachers and their parents. And I think, you know, I think he's actually proved that there's, there's lots of runs on the board and that he's listening to the community and, you know, the Equality Minister Martin Foley and the, the, the commitment that this current government has had to having a commissioner for sexuality and gender, which is Commissioner Roe Allen, I think has made a real difference in the state of Victoria. Mm -hmm. To have someone direct into government that is dedicated to the LGBTI issues has had a, you know, means we have an ear to government and I think that there's, there's, there's more to be done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they tried to put a trans bill up in Parliament and that's still to go. And there's, there's other things that still need to be done. I think we need to do heaps around intersex rights. I think, you know, mm -hmm. we're still um, we're still doing the wrong thing with intersex uh, children's rights um, at the Royal Children's Hospital. We're still doing operations on babies and young people, uh, you know, gender operations that are unnecessary and contravene people's human rights and later on cause undeniably huge psychological issues for people um, that are totally unnecessary. So I think there's, like, there's some spaces that we need to go into mm -hmm. that, that are, are glaringly, but I think um, the government and, and is committed to that. But I think, you know, as a, you know, I'm, I'm not part of government, I'm a community organisation and our role is Definitely. always to, to keep the government on their toes. I love that. That's exactly what we want happening. Um, so just f finishing off, Joe, uh, just a reminder, if people want to get involved at all, they uh, to head to your Twitter to help follow the campaign. Uh, is that correct? Is there anywhere that's else we correct. can access you? No, that's the main way we're running this campaign. I encourage you to follow our Facebook account and all our social media at Switchboard. Uh, it's called Switchboard Victoria, and I think, you know, just... I, my, my, I have a big plea to everyone is that we actually need your help to save our service. And that, that, you know, we are currently, we don't have the money. So we're encouraging people to fundraise, donate and join our campaign and put pressure on the government to refund it. Because going forward, we are $50,000 less a year to run our service, which is a huge, huge gap huge that we gap. have to fill. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and we hope to talk to you in the future, Joe. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah, and that was Joe from the, uh, the CEO of Switchboard. Yeah, it's such a such a huge issue. And uh, again, how could you give that money to mainstream services when you've mm. identified need within uh, within in, the community? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. Um, next uh, thing we've got coming up, I believe, is uh, your interview, Judith. Yes, um, and um, I don't know if you've noticed or been aware, but it's been the 40th anniversary of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. And uh, Monday, February the 11th, marked the anniversary of the Declaration of the State. So I'm sure you'd be aware that the, the U.S. Uh, President Donald Trump describes Iran as the, the world's leading state sponsor of terror. 
Mm. But uh, in a press release from the Australian Catholic University, uh, they noted that Iran experts at that university say that the country is widely misunderstood. And I think it, it's not that easy necessarily to get information. You, ha- you, go, you have to go looking. Um, however, the information is certainly available. And so it's widely misunderstood and in many ways more liberal than other parts of the Middle East and in particular Saudi Arabia. So I caught up with Dr. Nicholas Persol on Monday to find out why that's the case. He's a political theorist. He has interests and very broad interests about deliberative democracy, multiculturalism, political Islam. But before I spoke to him, I, I wanted to do a little searching myself And I found out that Iran has a history of popular protest, which goes back to the 1800s. Oh, wow. Yeah, when the Shahs started selling off uh, the the resources of the country to various European interests, in particular to um, the UK, well, Britain. So when I spoke to Nicholas Purcell from the Australian Catholic University, he actually told me about another revolution. The one which people don't really talk about much is the constitutional revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. And interestingly, in that case, the clerics, Shiite clerics, were in favor of constitutionalism. So it is wrong to believe that clerics, Shiite clerics, are always in favor of a theocracy, because it was actually historically not the case. In 1953, the popular democratically elected Mohammed Mossadegh was removed in a coup engineered by the CIA and Britain's MI6, installing the unpopular Shah Reza Pahlavi for another 26 years. How important was that event in the 1979 revolution? I think that it shows a very deep distrust of uh, foreign intervention in Iran. And it shows how popular leader, in that case it was a popular leader, can be removed from power, even when they have the support from the people, just because of international intervention and geopolitics. Uh, Some people could use that as an example to show that uh, the U.S. and other Western powers don't always have the best interests of the Iranian people uh, in mind. So the Trump administration, they are so hostile towards Iran that it can definitely reinforce the more aggressive fringe in the Iranian revolutionary forces and in some of the clerics who are more uh, conservative. It gives them a way of having an external enemy and therefore reinforce their power in Iranian society. With the 1979 revolution, and I do understand that lots of people from all different backgrounds in Iran were really unhappy with the Shah. So we have Marxists, we have leftists, we have intellectuals, we have the religious groups. How did it happen that the religious groups came to prominence after? Everything you say is correct. It was not just from the beginning a religious uprising. But it is important to realize the charismatic role played by Ayatollah Khomeini in the process. And because he was seen as that very charismatic leader, the religious dimension of the revolution became quite important from the beginning. However, it is important to highlight the fact that Khomeini himself was not very clear about his intention. He had theorized a Islamic government, it's called Velayat al-Faqi, is the idea of a, a Shia jurist being in charge of the country politically, but it was more of a theory. 
He never really, before the revolution, clearly showed his intention to implement that. So it wasn't clear that he was intending to implement a theocratic state, and maybe he wasn't even clear himself. No, exactly. It's very hard to know what his real belief and intention was. Other clerics, such as Montazeri, one of the highest Shiite cleric at the time, part of that whole revolutionary movement in Iran, He's, to a certain extent, responsible for the implementation and institutionalization in the constitution of the, that political theory after he really turned against the Islamic State, especially because of issues relating to human rights, uh, lack of democracy. And when he passed away, a lot of people attended his funeral and saw him as a pro-democracy figure and important leader in the country, despite the fact that he's responsible for the theocratic state in Iran to a very large extent. So what you're saying is that Iran politically is much more complex than we're led to believe often in the West. It is very complex because you have different understanding of what an Islamic state should be, what the role of Sharia of Islamic law should be, but they also have some room for changing Islamic laws to make it more beneficial to the states. But Shia clerics emphasize the importance of reason in uh, creating Islamic laws and rules. It's called usulism. They actually use that principle to implement political laws from an Islamic perspective, but using reason at the same time. So it's very complex. And then on the other hand, a lot of people also don't know that a lot of Shiite clerics actually are against the Islamic State. Some of them were uh, under house arrest and had a lot of programs and jailed and so in Iran, usually people who are in trouble, it's people who are extremely against religion, but also very religious people might be in, in trouble in Iran as well. Not because they adopt some Western views on democracy, etc., but from a deeply theological Shiite background, they make arguments against the Islamic State. So it's very important to understand that the Shiite clerics are not all in favor of an Islamic State. And as a matter of fact, the highest religious authority nowadays is Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq. And Ayatollah Sistani played a very important role in the democratization of Iraq after the 2003 intervention. And he is opposed to the political system in Iran. And that was Nicholas Purcell from the Australian Catholic University. And obviously, like Christianity, like Buddhism, like other religions, Islam is diverse. But I think we, we realize that. But within Iran as well, there are diverse opinions and, um, and many interpretations. Definitely. And I love, the, I, I love the point he raises, which is um, what we're screened in the West is a very biased account. And it's a very singular account of what Iran is. As a, uh, do you as feel a that as, as a consumer of the media? About definitely, them? definitely. I think, especially, as a, especially in Australia, we are fed the U.S.'s propaganda about Iran. And the U.S. singles that out as their you know, number one enemy we're going to be fearful of in the Middle East, and that means we get fed a lot of a lot of um, what the U.S. wants us to perceive about yeah. Iran. You know, you know what I'm like. I got mm. really fascinated looking into this, <laughs> and so I looked up Iranian heavy metal music, Iranian hip hop. <laughs> I mean, there's lots, lots to know. Of course, within those groups, some are, are persecuted. So mm. you know, there's but but within the population itself. You know, the, the huge diversity of interests. So we're going to hear more now from my conversation. Dr. Nicholas Persolan, the kind of conversation, because I feel like it's opening up uh, a dialogue, as, you know, World Radio Day suggests we might do. Definitely. Uh, yeah, but to, to, to talk about and, and just be better informed of what's going on in Iran. Um, and now we're going to talk about the idea of pro, promo, 
promulgated by the U.S., as, as you were referring to, that Iran is an exporter of terror. Um, he noticed that Iran indeed has supported Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas, mm-hmm. but there's more to understand about Iran. Iran has played a very important role in the fight against ISIS and Al-Qaeda and these different uh, Sunni extremist groups in the region. But these groups are supported by Saudi Arabia and many powers in the West, the US, Britain, France, have very strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. Therefore, it doesn't really make sense to say that Iran is a key sponsor of terrorism while actually most of the weapons and funds came from Saudi Arabia and we are allied with Saudi Arabia. How does the fact that the U.S. continually represents Iran as part of the axis of evil, how does that affect politics within Iran, where, as you pointed out earlier, there are different groups, different factions with different ideas about how the country should move forward? Many countries need an external enemy to keep the power over the people. I think that's one of the ways it's being used at the moment. Being used by who? By the more radical clerics and people in power. The approach of the Obama administration was much more useful to have a more moderate political sphere in Iran. Was it more useful to making change in Iran? Yeah, it works much better. And culturally, uh, people in Iran are a lot closer to uh, the West than many people actually think. So having that more friendly approach to Iran and being part of a more global economy and having economic ties would definitely help Iran to democratize itself much more than having a hostile approach to Iranian politics and trying to overthrow the system to basically replace it with another system that would be secular but wouldn't be much more democratic, I think. I think it's much better to change it slowly, keep that stability, than to try to topple it and replace it with a pro-US and democratic secular state. Iran is a very ambiguous type of country because it's a theocratic form of government, but for example... It is allowed in Iran to have plastic surgery to change your gender, and that actually comes from a fatwa from Ayatollah Khomeini. Apparently, it's quite common for people in the Middle East to go in Iran and do this kind of surgeries. And I did read an article in The Guardian saying there's a lot of underground tattooed parlors, and that people that might have initially uh, tattooed makeup, like eyeliner and... The lips as well. ...are now moving into tattoos more generally, and uh, among young people in particular, it's very cool and a way of making a statement. Yeah, and interestingly, again, there's a Shiite public speaker who's very famous in the English-speaking world, who's got his whole arm tattoos with a sleeve, and even on his hands he's got tattoos. I've been to Iran uh, maybe like eight years ago, I would say, and it's really interesting. You do definitely feel like you are in an Islamic country, and you do know that it's an Islamic state. Regarding gender inequalities, there's definitely an issue in Iran about that. I'm not uh, saying it's not. But again, to talk about Saudi Arabia, where women, I think they can drive now, I'm not even really sure that they actually do. But I was in Iran, and it's very common to see like two girls with a shadow flying on a motorbike. It looks like Batman, and they go to the park and have fun, and so... What kind of changes or reforms do you see or hear about Iranian people asking for? It really depends, because it depends on the social class, I'd say. Unfortunately, some people in Iran are so unhappy with the current political system that they gave up their belief in democracy and said, no, no, we need a strong leader to come and change and unify Iran. So there are still some people that long for the past. I I am 100% sure that some people would like to get back to what? Something which is interesting to explore maybe is the idea that in Iraq, 
the Shiite clerics did play a role in the democratization of the state. And in the past, some clerics in Iran also were in favor of more democratic systems. What can the West do then? You mentioned Obama and the approach Obama took as being better than what we're seeing now. One thing the West could do is stop these stereotypes about Iran and try to get closer to Iran and have Iran as an ally in the region instead of Saudi Arabia. The past few years, there were so many problems related to terrorism in Europe. Most of the terrorists in Europe were brainwashed by clerics who were trained in Saudi Arabia and had Wahhabism as a form of ideological background. It would be interesting to see what the landscape of Muslim communities in the West would look like if the West would stop having such close relationship with Saudi Arabia and with different forms of Islam, such as the one in, um, in Iran. There are some Sunni branches of Islam that are less extremist than Wahhabism as well. But it would be really interesting to see. So just having better, more cordial friendship, relationship with Iran would be an interesting step in that direction, I think. Has the revolution achieved what the people of Iran wanted? Well, it achieved it because they did topple the, the Shah of Iran. So the first step, it was achieved. The problem is that people in Iran felt bet betrayed because the promises of more freedom and democracy, etc., which were a bit ambiguous from the beginning, did not really come to fruition. And it's pretty clear nowadays that issues of human rights, lack of democracy, etc., is a definitely big problem in Iran nowadays. However, I was talking with an Iranian PhD student back in Auckland, and she was saying that socially they have less freedom now than under the Shah, but politically they have more freedom than under the Shah. As in, so socially they have to wear hijab in the street, they can't drink alcohol, etc. But there's still a little bit of democracy going on in Iran. And it's very interesting to see that Iranian people, despite the fact that they have such a restricted democracy, are still quite interested in the political system, are still very involved in the democratic process. And that's something which I find interesting. And a big thank you to Dr. Nicholas Persol for that conversation and really an exploration of what's going on in Iran now and um, ways of, um, you know, opening up our thoughts and minds and looking a Definitely. bit more deeply into what goes on there. Were you any surprises for you there? Uh, quite a few, actually. Um, just the, the, the different surgeons of culture, I think. There, there's some culture there which people, you know, we're often told, doesn't exist. It's a oppressive dictatorship with, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. At least that's more, the, that's more the, nuanced. That's the rhetoric that. we're, we're fed. <laughs> yeah. So just some of those points he raised, it's like, wow, okay, yeah. yeah. Just proving that, you know, wherever you go in the world, people are people, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And there is, you know, within there is diversity and there's many mm. views and, uh, yeah, just a more understanding. I, I'm hoping that over the next uh, month we can actually have more interviews and look a bit more because I think it's going to become quite important in the next year. That'd be fantastic. And if people do want to follow more, there was an article uh, just, just published in the conversation by Dr. Nasir Gobadzadeh, who's also from the Australian Catholic University, mm -hmm. and so he also talks about what's going on and uh, looks at other perspectives as well, so you could check that out. Or you could look up hip-hop in Iran and uh, groups like Hitchkas. Yeah, have fun. Honestly, that sounds like so much fun. Um, now, talking about hip-hop and music, we're going to skip to a track, and this is... Uh 
Oh, it's kind of obvious, but this is in celebration of World International World Radio Day. It's called Radio Radio by Elvis Costello, and we're playing it partially because it is World Radio Day and partially because we're celebrating our own Radio 3CR with our subscriber drive, um, which I'll hook you up with the details once we come back. Feed Radical Radio. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe once now. <laughs> once we come back. Anyway, this is Radio Radio by Elvis Costello. And that was Radio Radio by Elvis Costello. We're playing that as the anthem of International Radio Day. And a reminder to anyone who'd like to subscribe, um, it is uh, open right now at 3CR. You can come to our station online or by form on the phone. Uh, and it's $35 for a concessional pension, uh, $75 for a wage subscription, and $150 for solidarity. And really, I think uh, 3CR is fed on a good de- diet of energy, politics, and passion. It if is. If you're interested, joining in I recommend it <laughs> yeah in lots of ways you know we Definitely. also operate with lots of volunteers mm. and uh, that's important too yeah. yeah I think I've I've been volunteering for just a year now and I've absolutely loved it I've got to meet and hear so many different things and people it's been fantastic and, and voices different and voice, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's, it's great it is great and the feeling here is fantastic everyone supports the voices that come out of it and the stories to come out of it and it's, it's just a lovely family here mm. Anyway, um, for a rundown of our guests today, uh, we started off the show really with our interview at 7.30 with Dr. Sue Warren. No, before that, we oh. had another one. Yeah, <laughs> Vanessa Lamb talking about water policy in in Myanmar. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we did. Definitely. Yes. And definitely, yeah, then Dr. Sue Warren mm. uh, from the, the International President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And she was talking particularly about the urgent medical treatment bill that went through Parliament. How exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and something to follow, especially today, because it'll be uh, being presented at the Senate today. Mm. And so we've got, um, I know ASRC is also doing some live coverage of that, if you want to oh, okay. oh, watch that yep. and keep up to date with it. Yeah. Um, so after Sue, Dr. Sue, we also then had uh, an interview with Joe from Switchboard. Now, Joe is the CEO of Switchboard, which is an organization um, which looks out for the, for the recognition rights and services of LGBTQIA community. And, and, and this was uh, yeah, about cuts to this services for cuts elders. cuts to services. Particular. That's another thing to look out for. Yes, and then we, we finished up with uh, speaking to, doc, to Dr. Nicholas Persol from the Australian Catholic University about Iran and uh, you know looked at it from a number of different ex- uh, perspectives and uh, we'll, we'll do more of that in yeah. the future. Anyway, yeah. we're running out of time, so a quick shout-out to the show before us, Earth Matters, and a quick shout-out to the one to come, which is Stick Together. Um, we'll see you next Wednesday. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.